0: Our uh, scripture passage, 14, verses 15 through 31. If you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it never sees him nor knows him, but you know him, The one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them, and he will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You've heard me say, I am going away, and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn I love the Father and do exactly what the Father commanded me. Come now, let us leave. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. If you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, obey my commandments. One of the most common misunderstandings about Christianity is is that people think it is a faith that is first and foremost about being a good person. And I understand why they might think that because throughout history there have been a lot of times when the church has seemed to lead with the rules. When it has seemed like the church was mostly concerned about how people behave. We've spent our energies on political maneuverings so that we can kind of mandate Christian morality onto the masses. And I think that's also why today when you see Christians presented in the media in movies or TV shows or uh, you see some depictions of Christians somewhere, they always seem to be these kind of miserable people, right? The Christians in, in, in shows are always judgmental, they're always kind of hostile, they're not the kinds of people you want to hang around. The culture has been conditioned to expect that Christians, church people, want to shame them for their life choices or just try and tell them how to live. I don't think it's a coincidence that we find in the world today there's an increasingly large number of people who say they want nothing to do with the church. Leading with morality has always led the world to despise the church. And it's not just bad for people out there. It's not just bad for the, the people in the world. It's bad for us in here. It's bad for the church. Leading with the law ruins the church. It creates inside the church a bunch of self-righteous people, people who are very concerned with following the minute details of the rules that we're supposed to be, follow, but inside their hearts are rotten. Or if it doesn't make Pharisees, then on the other hand, it makes these guilt-ridden strugglers, right? People who do see their sin. People who realize how bad they are, but they're so afraid of sharing about their failings and their weaknesses, they they believe that they're going to be shamed, that they're going to be punished, and so they live with fear, and they live with shame, and they live with doubt. But this passage today... It has nothing to do with that stuff. This passage today has nothing to do with that kind of law-first thinking. Now, it's about obedience. It really is. This is a passage that talks about keeping God's commands. But, really, it's about the Holy Spirit. This is a passage about a power that is at work in us. It's a passage about how the Christian faith, rather than being a a faith that starts on the outside and is all concerned with behaviors that need to be changed, it is actually a faith about inner transformation. This is a passage that shows us holiness for the Christian doesn't begin with us, but it actually begins with God. And so Jesus, that's what we're going to read. We're going to read Jesus' teaching on this. And here he teaches us that Christians, yes, we become holy. But we become holy because God loves us first. We become holy because God is at work in us. And we become holy because, well, his spirit makes us holy. So that's what we're going to talk about. We become holy because God loves us first. Now, let's remember just quickly where we are. Uh, These chapters of John are part of a big speech that Jesus gives around the Last Supper. And this speech goes on for several chapters. It's a speech where Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples for what's about to come. He's trying to prepare them for his death But not just his death. He's thinking about the ministry that they're going to have in the future after he is resurrected. And here, to get them ready for that moment, he gives them this teaching. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then he says it several times. He restates it a lot. I don't know if you picked up on that as we read the passage. But he says it in the first verse we read. Then he says it again in verse 21. He says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, is the one who loves me. In in verse 23, he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And then he says it negatively in verse 24. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And then he kind of underlines it in the last verse to say, and I do this too. He said, I love the Father, and I do exactly what my Father commanded me. Now, if you're a Christian here in the room, do those words kind of scare you a little bit? I think sometimes they do. I think sometimes we read those words and we kind of hear them backwards in our head. We we imagine that it says something like, if you really love God, then you stop sinning. That if you really love God, then you're going to always obey and it's going to be easy. But that's not what Jesus says. It's, that is a, a total... Twisting of what the scripture says. He's not trying to say that the Christian life is a perfect life. He's not telling us that the Christian life is a sinless life, right? Just think of who he's talking to, right? He's talking to the disciples. These guys are a mess. He knows that they're not about to go off and live perfect lives. But what he is saying is, if you love me, that's how he starts, if you love me, he's talking about the grounds of our obedience. That the Christian's obedience is grounded in the love of God. That people will obey his commands because they love him. In other words, our, our obedience, true obedience, doesn't come out of a motivation that we need to perform or we need to prove ourselves. It's not motivated by a fear of judgment or a fear of rejection of God. True obedience is a heart-level response to God's love, to who God is, and to what he has already done for us. Real holiness flows out of love for the Holy One. But even that, let me, let's think about that for a moment. Where does our love for God come from? What does the Bible say? Did we just one day wake up and, and all of a sudden we decided that we were going to start loving God? Or did God initiate that love? Well, you know, it starts with God, right? That's Romans 5. Romans 5, it says, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't start loving God. God started loving us. And then John, the same author, later when he's writing a letter to the church, he emphasizes this. He says, we love because he first loved us. It's not a relationship that we started, folks. He loved us first. And not only did he start it, but Scripture assures us over and over again that he's going to keep it going And he's going to bring it to completion. You remember that verse Paul says, he who began a good work in you, he's going to bring it to completion. And how is he going to do that? Well, that's what this passage is about. He tells us right here in verse 16, he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. So Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to obey my commandments. But then immediately he says, but I'm not asking you to do it alone. I'm not asking you to do this all by yourself. I'm sending you my spirit, and he's going to be with you, and he's going to ensure that you can do it. And how long did he say the spirit was going to help? Did he say the spirit was going to help until you messed up? Did he say the spirit was going to help until you reached your 1,000 sin quota? No. He said he will be there to help you forever. Everybody say forever. 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 So you shouldn't be scared of this verse. You shouldn't be scared of this passage. This isn't meant to be a burdensome saying. In fact, this, what rightly understood, is it's like a fire hose of good news. Jesus After saying, he's going to give us a helper forever, then to further emphasize that point, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. You're never going to have to go it alone. I'm not going to leave you behind. You know why Jesus said that? He said that because he knows that we have an enemy who is always telling us, the opposite thing we have an enemy and you know what he doesn't fight fair he fights dirty satan wants you to believe that you are an orphan he wants you to believe that you do have to go it alone he wants you to believe that it's all up to you Sometimes I think that that Satan wants us to imagine that our life, it's like we're standing on a stage, and we're doing all the things that we need to do, and God is out there in the audience, you know, sitting in the balcony, and his arms are folded, and he's watching this drama unfold, and when you do something that he likes, maybe he claps, maybe he's happy, but if you don't, he's up there, and he's scowling. And he's angry. And he's thinking, you know, maybe I'll just walk out on this show. Our enemy, he wants us to imagine a God who is out there, who is far off, who is distant, who is demanding. He wants us to believe that everything rests on our shoulders. You better obey. You better not stumble. But that's not the truth. God loves you first. God loves you so much that he came to earth and died to make you his own. He calls you his child. His spirit dwells in you. He is not going to leave you like an orphan. He's not far away. He's not off scowling. It says, on on the contrary, he's doing everything he possibly can to guarantee that you're going to get through this. He's going to make it possible for you to make it out of this hard life and live with him forever. I'll never forget how a buddy of mine was imagining the moment that he would meet Jesus we were having a conversation, and I tried to remember. I don't remember how it came up. But we were talking about what it was going to be like in that moment when we finally encountered Christ face-to-face. And, and I think at the time, I was you know, caught up in my own head, thinking about my own sin. And whatever thing I was imagining, it just it wasn't very glorious. It wasn't very special. And my friend was like, well, I don't know about you, but man, I can't wait. I can't wait till I see Jesus because I know that as soon as as I see him, he's going to come up and he's going to give me a huge bear hug and a high five, and he's going to say, way to go. I am so glad to see you. I know how hard it's been. I know what the temptation has been like. I know the pain and the heartache that you have been through, but you made it. We did it. And I'm so glad to see you. You're safe battle's over welcome home and I just remember I was so struck by his confidence this picture that Jesus really wants to see him and I realized you know he's right he does want to see me and he wants to see you of course he does he gave his life for you He wants to see you. God gave his only son for you. We are not his enemies. We are loved. We're not orphans anymore. We're children. So when Jesus says, if you love me, he's just stating a fact. That's that's true of every Christian. That is true of every person who has encountered Christ and knows him. When you know Christ as your savior, you love him. Of course you do, because he loved you first. That's the first point. The second thing we see here in this passage, though, is that that we become holy because his spirit is at work in us. So as we we go on and, and we read this passage, what we find here is there's some really good doctrine. Some solid stuff that we should learn about the Holy Spirit. But I think as Presbyterians, we can pretty easily get bogged down in that cerebral theological stuff. And when we do that, we might miss this really incredible thing that Jesus is saying. He is saying that we have power, not just that. There is a Holy Spirit and that he is the third person of the Trinity and we need to know about him so we can recite creeds and confessions. But he is saying that if any of you in this room know Christ, then his real power is at work in you right now. The Holy Spirit is in you if you know Jesus. That's incredible. Verse 19, Jesus says, in a minute, he says, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Now, right there, he's talking about his death and his resurrection. I'm going to die, but then I'm going to come back. What does that mean, though? When he, when he, well, he's really talking about our salvation, right? When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that's, well, that's the basic story, right? He died for our sins, but death didn't win that battle, right? That wasn't the end of the story. When, when Jesus died, that, he didn't just die. When, when sin, when, when he bore the weight of our sins, sin didn't win, but he triumphed over sin. He triumphed over death and he rose again. And so then he says, because I live, you also will live. Because I live, you also will live. So on one hand, he's talking about those, that fact, that if you trust in Christ for your salvation, your sins are paid for and you're going to live. He's telling us about our salvation. But do you know what else? He's also talking about the power in us. He's saying that when I rise, you rise too. That the same power that, that brings Jesus from the dead didn't stop In that moment, but Paul tells us that it's still working itself out in your life. Do you remember that verse in Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians 1.18. Paul, he's praying for the church. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. So he says, I'm praying that your eyes would be open so that you would know how great God's power is for everyone who believes. And then he says, That power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. That same power that brought Jesus from the dead is at work in your life. The Spirit of God is at work in us. His power is in you. But even that, I know, can be kind of confusing. Okay, but what does that really mean? What is the Spirit doing? What is this power that you're telling me is in, inside of me? Well, the Bible tells us, first of all, that the Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing. The Holy Spirit is a hymn not an it. And that can be a little confusing for us because in English when we talk about spirit, a lot of times we we will say it. But this is trying to tell us that the Holy Spirit is not like the Force in Star Wars. But instead, the, the Holy Spirit is a person who is powerful. A person who is powerful and who is at work in us. And so when we're experiencing that power, It is not like sitting on a park bench and trying to channel your chi or something Something like that. But instead, it, it is it's more like becoming aware of a friend who's been with you the whole time. It's learning how to receive his guidance, learning how to listen to his voice. Learning how to walk alongside of him in step as he is following and carrying out and empowering us to live in the will of God. We've got to hear his voice, but what does his voice say? Well, let me list three quick things. The first thing that his voice is always saying to us is his voice is speaking words of conviction. In chapter 16, Still part of this speech, when Jesus continues to talk about the Holy Spirit, he says that's one of the main works. That when the Spirit shows up, what he's going to do is he's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So one of the things the Holy Spirit's going to do is he's going to allow us to see our sin. Now, that doesn't mean it won't be possible to sin, right? Of course, it will be possible to sin when we're Christian, but when the Holy Spirit's in you, sin is not the same as it used to be. The Holy Spirit brings with him an awareness of the pain that our sin brings to the heart of God. He shows us the damage that the sin is doing in our own lives. And he's, he brings us a sense of that disruption that sin has introduced into our fellowship with God. I knew a guy who, when he came to faith, he was in a long-term relationship. And that was an intimate relationship. It was a sexual relationship. And once he came to faith, he tried to continue in that relationship the way he always had before. But as, as he was sharing his story, he said that he just couldn't, that in his life the, that it was just physically and mentally no longer possible for him to sin without conviction, that, it, that, that, that he was aware that, that his sin was costing him because the Spirit was at work in his life. And so when you feel conviction, that's what's happening. There is a power at work in you. The Spirit convicts us of sin. That's the first thing that His voice does. The secondly, His voice speaks for us. Two times in our passage, when Jesus is identifying who the Holy Spirit is, He calls Him the advocate. He says, I'm going to send you an advocate. Everybody say advocate. advocate. So advocate, what is that? Well, that's a a legal term, first of all. It is uh, a term used of a, a legal defense counselor. And who is he defending us against? Satan. Right, he's not defending us against God. Some people might think, oh, he's defending us, he's, he's representing us. No, he's not. God's on our side. God loves us. But he is defending us, well, first of all, against ourselves, I think. He's defending us against our own unbelief. That nagging voice inside of us that is telling us, well, I can't be forgiven this time. That's saying, well, God doesn't really want you. And he's defending you against the attacks of the enemy. He's defending you against the accuser standing on the other side of the courtroom. Who's trying to shipwreck your faith who's trying to make you believe that you are an orphan, even though God says that you're not. And and Paul tells us specifically, he does that by living in our hearts and constantly crying out, Abba, Father. The Spirit defends us by testifying that we are sons of God, that we are daughters of God. He reminds us that we belong to God and that nothing can change it. He's the advocate, defending us against the attacks of the accuser and speaking truth that our penalty has already been paid, that we belong to Christ, that we are members of the household of God. So he convicts us. He he advocates for us. And, And thirdly, it says here that he teaches us through the Scripture. Verse 26, Jesus says, but the advocate the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've said to you. So one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is that he brings the word of God to life for us. He opens our eyes to understand and to believe everything that Jesus has taught, everything that the scriptures have taught. Uh, I knew a pastor, and he was telling the story of his own conversion. He'd grown up in the church. He even, I think, went to Bible college. But he didn't become a Christian until later when he was in the military. And when he came to faith, he came in such a powerful way that he just couldn't get enough. You know, he was reading the Bible all the time. He was so excited. And one day he was complaining to his friend, because he's like, wow, the gospel is such great and amazing news. How could I have gone my whole life without knowing it? I'm so irritated that I could grow up in the church and they never preached the gospel. That I could go to Bible school and they, they never preached the gospel. That I'd read all these theologians and not even Martin Luther knew what the gospel was. And the guy s- laughed listening to him and he said, when was the last time you read Martin Luther. He's like, well, I haven't read it since I came to faith. He's like, maybe go back, check it out. And so he goes back, and he starts to read it, and he realized not only is the gospel in there, but this guy knows the gospel much better than he knows the gospel. But what was the difference? The Spirit. The Spirit had not opened his eyes and his ears. He had not brought him back to life. That's what the Spirit does. He teaches you, and that means whenever you pick up this book and something in it strikes your heart, whenever you hear a sermon and it changes your life in some way, whenever you learn some truth about God from a brother or sister in the church, something powerful is taking place there. Do you realize that? That is not something every person gets, so many people pick up this book and it's nothing. It's meaningless. It's just another piece of old literature. But when the people of God, indwelt by his spirit, encounter him, it is an amazing and powerful work. Something that you only experience because there is a living God at work in your life. And so the spirit, he is at work in us. He convicts, he advocates. He teaches us. He has power, and that power is at work in you. But finally, the thing I want to point out is that his spirit also makes us holy. The Westminster Confession, one of the things that it tries to emphasize, he wants us to recognize that the power that saves us is the same power that makes us holy. Uh, what that means is, it's not like a lot of people think. That you hear the gospel, and maybe you walk down the aisle at your church, and you get baptized, and Jesus saves you. But then after that, well, it's up to you. The story is not that, that Jesus comes to earth, and he dies for your sins, and he, he washes you clean, and then he says, okay, now go take care of the rest. Now go be like me. No. Here's the question in how they put it in the Westminster. It says, what is sanctification? And I think I have the answer up there. If you'll... What is sanctification? And the answer, it says, is sanctification is the work of God's free grace where we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and we are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness. Now, let me break that down for a second. What that means is the process of becoming like Jesus is not all that different from the process of meeting Jesus. It's all by his grace. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. It's all by his power. But where salvation happens in just a moment, that moment when we repent of our sins and turn to our Savior, sanctification is that grace working itself out throughout the course of our whole lives. In other words, this is saying that God will make you like him. That's just what he does. He isn't going to stop working. He is going to transform you, and there's nothing you can do about it. He's going to make you like him, and there is not a single thing that you can do to stop him because that is how good he is. You know, another way you could say that is this. If you love him, you will obey his commands. But it sounds different, right? When you put it in that context, it's far more about him being good than about us being bad. It's about him making us into the people that he has created us to be. It's about the good promises of his abundant grace that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. But I want to be honest about it. You know, I'm trying to emphasize here this morning that real obedience flows out of a response to God's love, that that real holiness is, is God's spirit working holiness out in our lives. But I want you to also hear me say honestly, that doesn't mean obedience is easy. We still live in a broken world, and sin is a part of our lives, and sin is at war in our hearts every day, and sometimes following Jesus, loving him, being faithful, being righteous, sometimes it's painful, right? Sometimes following Jesus is hard. Sometimes it costs a lot. Sometimes it feels like it'd be easier to just die than do what Jesus asks. And it takes every ounce of self-control. And you know what else? Sometimes we don't obey. Sometimes I fall flat on my face. Sometimes I I fail and, and I make a mess of everything. The confession, it says that we're enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. And it kind of seems like it's this upward, upward, upward kind of path. But sometimes I look at my life and I think, wow, you know, I really thought I'd be better by now. You ever feel that way? Like, gosh, wow, I've been following Jesus for so many years and I just can't believe I still fight with anxiety like this, or lust, or, or anger, or addiction. I, I can't believe I can just still be such a jerk sometimes. But do you know that even that thought is a part of your sanctification? Even recognizing that means that God still has you. That he hasn't left you. In fact, in my life, the longer I walk with Jesus and and the more I experience his grace and mercy in those kind of moments, that's where the power is. You know, the Spirit makes us holy by showing us the emptiness of our sin and the fullness of God's love, especially when we don't deserve it. Especially when we haven't done what we wanted to do. And near the end of our passage, Jesus ends by saying, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. See, these are God's good promises to all of us who will come. He's saying that he's not going to leave you as an orphan. He's not going to take back his promises. His peace is a peace that's going to last. And even on your worst day, you don't have to worry. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. That's the gospel. It's, It's not a program to get your life in line. It's a relationship with one God in three persons who's transforming you into that person you were always created to be. And so as we close in prayer here, I just want to invite you, maybe you're in a place right now where you're feeling the burden and the weight, where you're hearing those those voices in your head telling you that you don't belong here, that you don't have a place. I want to invite you to come before the Lord and receive his mercy and his grace and his abundance. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, If you're hearing all this stuff and saying, man, I wish I had a helper. I wish I had an advocate. I wish my sins were paid for. Well, come before him. And they will be. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the good news that you haven't left us as orphans, that we are not alone, that you are on our side, that you are rooting for us and carrying us along. And today as we go out of here, back into our homes and our communities. I pray, Lord, that we would carry that good news, that we would know you, that we would experience you, that we would listen for your voice. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.